This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Thomas Aquinas, who lived for about 50 years in the 13th century, was one of the most important Christian teachers in that period. And though he was eclipsed in the centuries immediately following, his work returned to prominence in the 16th through the 19th centuries, particularly for Roman theologians for whom Thomas became the theologian of the Counter-Reformation. What you might not know, however, is that there were Protestant theologians in the 16th and 17th centuries and after who read appreciated, and even quoted Thomas approvingly. The great Reformed theologians, for example, Hiralamo Zanke and Peter Martyr Vermeule among them. David Vendrunen is Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He did his doctoral work on Thomas Aquinas, and he teaches an elective course for us on Thomas here at the seminary. He's co-editor of a new volume with Manfred Svensson of a collection of essays on Thomas entitled Aquinas Among the Protestants. This, with other faculty titles, is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. In the history of Westminster Seminary, as you well know, Thomas has often been cast as the villain of the story in Western theology. So, what's a good Dutch Reformed boy, now an Orthodox Presbyterian boy, doing reading and writing about Thomas Aquinas? Well, I would say there's a complicated answer to that in a way. Well, we and, have 30 minutes. Yeah, I so. suppose. I, <laughs> when I went into my doctoral program in ethics, I had no intention of working on Thomas Aquinas, but through some research I did, actually my very first semester, I got interested in a particular topic in which Thomas had written. And as I kind of worked towards this topic for my dissertation, and originally my dissertation was going to be Thomas and some other people on this topic, and I started working on Thomas on the topic, and I decided with my advisor's approval that I had a whole dissertation just working on Thomas. So I ended up, as you mentioned, studying Thomas Aquinas for my PhD dissertation. And then when I came to teach here at Westminster, of course, we have our historical theology program, and it made some sense for me to continue some of my work on Thomas and teach an elective course as part of our curriculum. And that stimulated some more thinking about him. And several years ago, my friend Manfred Svensson, who was a philosophy professor at the University of the Andes in Chile, which is a Catholic institution, but he's a Reformed Christian, and uh, we had made some contact by email long distance. But he was out in the States. In fact, he visited Westminster, as you may remember, and he proposed this idea of putting together this volume on Aquinas in Protestant thought. And... I really didn't want to get involved in another editing project, to be perfectly honest, but it seemed like a really interesting thing to be involved with. So I told him yes, and now that work has come to fruition in this volume. So in some ways, it seems like a bit of an accident that I began working on Thomas Aquinas. But I think once you start working on Thomas and you actually read him seriously and with a bit of an open mind, not just reading him as if you're reading him just to find problems, but you actually read him to try to figure out what he was saying and how he was developing his thoughts, 
there's certainly things we need to be critical about as Reformed Christians, but there's a lot to appreciate, and he's a fascinating thinker. So it certainly hasn't been the main focus of my scholarly life to be a Thomas scholar, but as a bit of a side project, it's been very profitable. There are two, it seems to me, cul-de-sacs relative to Reformed people or Protestants more broadly reading Thomas. One is an argument that actually existed in the 16th century and that some evangelicals have resuscitated in the late 20th century and maybe after, and that is, were Thomas alive today, he would be a Protestant. That's one way of, I guess, in a sense, justifying reading Thomas, that really he's with us, all things considered. And the other is, don't read Thomas, he'll corrupt you and lead you to Rome. How do you think about those issues? And I guess that they're particularly relevant to a volume like this, since these are Protestants engaging Thomas. Right. I think both of those routes is not going to lead anywhere very productive. I think we always have to be careful when we're thinking about older historical figures to try to fit them into our current debates and to try to say, well, if X was alive today, he would be on my side rather than this other side. And the kind of debates we have today aren't necessarily the ones that they were thinking about. And so I think we have to say that Thomas said a lot of things. When you read them, you think, okay, we needed a Reformation. And here's an example of why we needed the Reformation. But when you read Thomas, you also see there is a lot of just plain orthodox Christian thought here on a whole lot of issues. In fact, as an important scholastic theologian of the high Middle Ages, he helped to develop a lot of the categories that we still use today, for example, in our doctrine of God. And I think to just write Thomas off as, well, you know, he's Catholic, or to try to baptize Thomas in a way that says, well, he's just one of us. I think both of those are just not very accurate. And so I think what we need to do is to read Thomas the way we ought to read basically all these pre-Reformation theologians. And that's to say, well, we, we expect to see things that are profitable. At the same time, we don't expect to agree with everything we read. So I think to engage in a kind of a sympathetic, critical reading of Thomas is the way to go. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to Dr. David Vendrunen about a new volume that he has co-edited, the title of which is Aquinas Among the Protestants. There are a lot of books about Thomas, as you well know. There are a lot of books about Thomas. <laughs> so if you, you know, if you go to the Westminster Seminary Library website, WorldCat, and you just type in Thomas Aquinas, you'll get back a lot of titles. So that whenever you go to writing a book about Thomas, that's obviously a question you have to face. Why would we add to this monumental stack of books? So, as you and Manfred talked about putting this together, what was your rationale for adding to this stack of books? Because there really isn't a book like this, and basically every author is going to defend a new book by saying that. But I would say, in this case— It's true in this case. It really is true in this case. That's right. It's always true in my case, yeah. Let me put it this way. There are all sorts of books on Thomas on all sorts of different issues. And there are a lot of books about the interpretation of Thomas through history, because we will hear about Thomists. And so what makes a Thomist? Well, you think a Thomist is kind of like you hear a Lutheran or a Calvinist or an Augustinian or something. Well, it's someone who draws inspiration and tries to work in the line of thought of this person. But basically, every history of Thomism or of the history of the interpretation of Thomas focuses upon Roman Catholic thinking since the Reformation. And there really isn't a volume that explores the way Protestants dealt with Thomas. How did they read him? To what extent were they sympathetic? To what extent were they 
critical. And the little that is written about Thomas and Protestantism tends to have a very anti-Thomas bias in that in sort of setting up Thomas as a caricature of all that's wrong with Roman Catholicism. And usually those kinds of descriptions of Thomas are not entirely accurate. Sometimes they're actually quite inaccurate. And so what this volume tries to do is to try to explore at least the first half of the book is historical and focused, and so tries to look at some major Protestant figures and to try to just ask, how did they read Thomas? What did they think of him? And the answer is not, well, they all loved him 100% or they hated him 100%. The answer is, it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, so many of them read Thomas, and they read him as one of our theologians in the sense that Thomas was in that line of Christian theologians before the Reformation. It was part of our history. You can't say he's just part of Roman Catholic history. He's part of our common history before the Reformation. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I want you to elaborate on that because I think that's a really important point because the broader point, whether we're talking about Thomas or Anselm or Augustine or any other famous theologians whose names begin with A right. or any other letter. Athanasius. In the Athanasius. What do we do with those figures and particularly with medieval figures? And I get this all the time. You know, I get emails. Should we read these fellows? And if so, you know, how do we do that? Many American evangelicals are given to think that you had the apostles and then you had some good early Christians and then the whole tradition kind of goes south and it gets resuscitated a little bit in the Reformation and then really fixed in the 19th century, something like that. And so that when they think of the medieval period, they think of it as belonging to Rome. Right. So there's a kind of suspicion and hostility and, as you've suggested frequently, an ignorance so that we don't directly engage them. So go back over that again and make a case for what you were saying that really these writers who wrote during the Middle Ages are ours just as much as they are Rome's. Okay. Let me begin with this by going to Matthew 16. It might seem like a strange way to begin answering your question. But you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter and the apostles, you know, that he's going to build his church. Gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Now, if we just think about that, that indicates that the church of Jesus Christ is not going to die out on this earth. And that means that there was a church of Jesus Christ, not just in the days of the apostles and not just maybe in those couple early centuries where you had, you know, some bright lights like Augustine, but we actually had a church of Jesus Christ that continued. And it wasn't just squirreled away among the Waldenses in the Alps. Right. Okay. So that would be part of my answer is that we actually, as Protestants, have an interest in saying, you know, the medieval church and medieval theology must not have been wholly corrupt, or else there seems to be some problem with Jesus' promise that he is going to preserve his church and he's not going to let it fall to Satan. So that's one way I would answer. And then I would say, if we actually look at the development of medieval theology, and we're talking you know, a thousand years approximately, it's a really long period of time. And were there many problems that developed in the church, both practically and theologically? The answer is yes, absolutely. Did we need a reformation? Yes, absolutely. But during that time, there were a lot of very brilliant, insightful theologians that on many issues were making some real progress in the way that we thought about things. And we can still read these people today and see ideas that you can find in Hodge and Burkhoff and Bovink if you go and read their systematic theologies. Here, let me give an example. 
when it comes to Aquinas, one of the caricatures of Aquinas, one of the reasons why a lot of Reformed and other Protestants will say, well, Thomas is kind of a bad guy, is that, well, Thomas wanted first to build, he thought when you're doing theology, first you kind of build this natural theology just by reason. And, you know, believers and unbelievers can build this up together and agree on everything. And then you can kind of add scripture to it and get the higher truths of theology. And I'm actually right at this moment working on another article that I was asked to write in which I'm looking at some of these issues in Thomas. And it's very interesting if you go to the very first article of his most famous work, the Summa of Theology, the very first topic that he considers is whether we need sacred doctrine, which is basically saying, do we need theology? Do we need a theology based on scripture or special revelation, as we would put it? And he argues, yes, we need it. And the reason is because reason can't tell us everything or what we might think of as natural revelation can't tell us everything. And not only that, is that if we only had reason and natural revelation, we would make many, many errors. And so we not only need scripture to tell us things that we couldn't know through our reason, but we also need scripture to correct all the errors that we make by our use of reason apart from scripture. Now, what reformed person wouldn't say, that sounds exactly right. And I think we would want to put it in some different ways from the way Thomas puts it there. But it's very interesting that if you just start reading Thomas, you almost immediately see there are some caricatures of Thomas that don't quite work. There's a received story that has a wide purchase that needs to be reconsidered, that, uh, that right. may not be correct. And that has been very influential. One of the figures that I talk about with the, the students when we go through Thomas in the Medieval Reformation course is Francis Schaeffer. Now, Schaeffer was not a Thomas scholar, but he did tell a story about Thomas in which Thomas is virtually presented as a pagan and the source of really all that went wrong in Western civilization. And he learned that story from earlier influences. But if you sit down and read Thomas, as you were saying, the discrepancy between what one sees in Thomas and the story that one may have learned from Schaefer or from other thinkers is really quite striking. And I think it's important that we get Thomas right, if only to prevent that sort of what scholars call cognitive dissonance, where what you heard is so fundamentally different from what you're seeing. And then students begin to say, well, if they didn't get that right, maybe they didn't get this right. And ultimately, getting Thomas wrong can lead to people saying, well, if they got Thomas wrong, maybe they got Rome wrong, and maybe I should swim the Tiber, as they say. Yeah. And I mean, you know, here's another thing. Thomas wrote a great number of biblical commentaries. That was my next question. Was it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people, again, the kind of caricature received story of Thomas that he is basically an Aristotelian who is trying to kind of add some Christian truths to a basically a pagan philosophy. Thomas spent a lot of his time studying, writing commentaries on scripture and lecturing on scripture. And now, again, that's not to say we're going to agree with all of his exegesis. But I think it's another way that highlights that if you think of the Middle Ages as simply this kind of theology that's light years away from us, well, let's make sure we understand that and that you have these great medieval figures that were really interested in scripture and they wanted to interpret scripture correctly. And that's just something we need to know. I think it's a way of saying when we as Protestants think scripture is really important and we want to be reading scripture and commenting on scripture and preaching from scripture, that's not something that was totally made up anew in the Reformation after having died for a thousand plus years. 
for us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu 888 480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with David Vendrunen about a new book that he's co-edited, the title of which is Aquinas Among the Protestants. Isn't it true, David, that the medievals were reading Scripture and coming to some very helpful and true and ecumenical conclusions, that is, conclusions shared by the church in all ages and at all times or all places, but they often read the Scripture under the influence of assumptions that we came to reject in the Reformation? That's right. Of course, we have to remember, we have to be honest that we all read Scripture with certain assumptions. You know, I read Scripture with certain Reformed assumptions. And so it's true of the medieval theologians as well. They read Scripture, but they had certain biases and they had certain convictions that I think we would have to say, no, those are wrong. I think when we're thinking about their work as biblical scholars, we have to remember that very few of them had good knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. They were working primarily with the Vulgate, with the Latin text. One of the things that spurred the Reformation was that there was this renewed interest in reading and studying the original languages of Scripture, and it helped these early Reformers to read Scripture better and more accurately and to be able to begin to correct some of the ways that these earlier thinkers were reading Scripture. But again, I think the point is, is that it's not as if the medievals didn't care about Scripture. Now, did they keep scripture from the masses? Was the typical parish priest illiterate with scripture? Yes. We know a lot of those things are true, but there is a long continuous line of biblical interpretation. And I think what's important, as you know, is that the Reformation and later Reformed theologians, they were actually reading medieval commentators on scripture. And so they were in conversation with these earlier writers. And if that's the case, then shouldn't we also, as we read scripture, you know, have some interest in the way that these thinkers handled scripture? One of the points that Richard Muller has made for a number of years is that when you read Calvin and Luther criticizing the scholastics, they're not talking about Thomas, and they're not talking about Anselm and other medieval theologians. They're talking about contemporary Roman Catholic theologians who are in Paris or in other places. 
So for a long time, I think many of us just assumed that that was their way of dismissing the medieval theologians. But in fact, that's not likely true. And so in this volume, I'm looking at the table of contents here. I see an essay on uh, the relationship between Thomas and Reformed or Protestant scholasticism, Thomas and William Whitaker and his defense of Scripture against Rome, Thomas and Jerome Zanke, whom I mentioned in the introduction an essay on Johann Gerhard, who's a Lutheran theologian from the 17th century, his reception of Aquinas, and a chapter that looks very interesting, and that is John Bolt doubting reformational anti-Thomism. So that will bear reading. It's a very good essay. Michael Allen on the active and contemplative life, Scott Swain and others, Paul Helm on nature and grace, and our own John Fesco on Aquinas' doctrine of justification and infused habits in Reformed soteriology. So there are a lot of reasons why one might want to look at this volume. So since Reformed readers and theologians were working with Thomas, if one reads Turretin, one will see Turretin engaging Thomas, sometimes appreciatively, sometimes critically, but engaging him thoughtfully. What happened? How did we lose track of Thomas? Where did he go in Protestant and Reformed theology? Well, I think that there was, you know, once we move beyond the 17th century. It certainly continues. If you read Boving, for example, I mean, he's reading Aquinas and he's interacting with him as well. But I think there was a general turn against the whole idea of scholasticism, which is getting at the point that you made a couple of minutes ago that you can see developing in 19th and especially 20th century, not just Reformed thought, but in broader Protestant circles, a sort of this idea that scholasticism, of which Thomas is seen as a preeminent representative, that scholasticism is sort of this dry, rationalistic, non-biblical, philosophical way of doing theology that is 100% against what the Reformation stands for and what Luther and Calvin were trying to fight for, which is a sort of a warm, practical, biblically-based theology. And with that kind of critique of scholasticism, which, as you were already indicating, is a real problem with that view. It's a real inaccurate caricature of scholasticism. Carl Truman and I did a book on this right. like 20 years ago. Yeah. It's really been over the last 20 to 30 years that there's been really serious critique of this idea of scholasticism as kind of an anti-biblical rationalistic theology. But I think with that caricature of scholasticism, Thomas got swept away with that. So I think that's part of it. And I think also part of it is that Roman Catholics do talk about Thomas a lot, and they appeal to Thomas in a way that's similar to the way Lutherans tend to talk about Luther or Reformed people talk about Calvin and others. It just, you know, he's sort of seen as their guy. And so since they make him their guy, we Protestants tend to think, well, he's not our guy. So if we read him, it must be just to find problems and to condemn him as a Roman Catholic. One of the things our book does, I think, is alongside the critique of that misimpression of scholasticism, which you and Carl Truman and Richard Muller and others have worked on in recent decades. I think this volume should be a nice accompaniment to that in saying, okay, while we're rethinking what scholasticism is, we need to rethink this idea that Thomas was just a bad guy that needs to be dismissed. So what have you, David, learned from Thomas Aquinas? You know, I think one thing that Thomas has helped me with is simply being a clearer thinker. 
Thomas is an incredibly clear thinker. When you first start to read Thomas, it's not easy. You have to get into it and kind of learn the way he goes about things. But once you do that, and it doesn't take that long, and for students who take my elective class on Thomas, it doesn't take them long. And I try to help them in the early weeks of the semester to kind of figure out how to read Thomas. Once you get going, you realize just how logically and clearly he developed things and how he anticipates objections to what he's going to say and how he answers objections and how he moves from one step to the next. And I think that's just helpful for me and I think helpful for others who read Thomas. It's just good training in clear thinking. But I've also been in my work on topics like natural law, Thomas He actually didn't write that much about it, but what he's written has been very important. And I think that there's a lot to appreciate in what he does with natural law. My idea of natural law is not identical to his, but I think my thinking has been sharpened a lot by um, reading him. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In his doctrine of salvation, we would disagree pretty fundamentally with the way he goes at things, the assumptions that he makes relative to how we come to stand before God and what's necessary and even what we do in salvation in some very important respects. Nevertheless, one of the things that I have the students read, Thomas comes up in two courses for me, one in the Medieval Reformation lecture course, but also in the Medieval Seminar, where we spend about half the semester reading big chunks of the Summa. Reading Thomas on pre destination and reprobation is really amazing. And I remember the first time I sat down and and read it seriously to say, okay, what does in Thomas's own terms and, and in his own language, what does he say? And in some ways, I've never really fully recovered from that experience because it's so remarkable. Yes, that's right. Thomas is a double predestinarian. It's important for people to know that, you know, people talk about Calvin as if he invented double predestination. Yeah, I've had many conversations with Roman Catholics, and I've said that, you know, Thomas is a double predestinarian, and they don't believe me. I have to you know, show them, but it's not obscure. I mean, it's quite clear. This is actually one thing that comes out a number of times in our volume, and there are other scholars who have talked about this recently, is Thomas as an Augustinian. And I think we think of, oh, well, Thomas as an Aristotelian. And, you know, in some ways, yeah, he thought Aristotle was important. He was critical of Aristotle, too. We need to remember that. But if we think that's all Thomas was, that's a huge error. And Thomas was with us, with Reformed and Lutherans, is part of a broader Augustinian tradition. And that doesn't mean we don't disagree on many things, but we disagree with Augustine on things that he said about grace and about salvation in the sacraments. So I think that's another example of where... There's a lot to appreciate in Thomas, even alongside the important disagreements. So we've had opportunity to express some sympathy with Thomas, and you said earlier that you want to read him sympathetically and critically. Where are some areas where you as a Reformed theologian would say to the reader, now here's some things to be aware of and places where you will want to disagree with Thomas? Well, I think probably the area to mention first is what you were referring to. If you read what he says about justification and his broader ideas of grace, you're going to find him in what is going to be recognizably more Roman Catholic lines. There have been a few Protestants who have tried to argue that Thomas held a Reformation view of justification. I just don't think that works. I think that's just not accurate. It was one thing for Vermeule and Zanke to make that argument in the 16th century, but it's another thing to make it in light of hundreds of years of Thomas research. Yeah, I just don't think that works. And so I think you'd have to be aware that he did not have a Reformation view of justification. And that's a serious error. And so that's one area I would say we needed a Reformation. 
if you look at the people that he cites the most besides scripture, of course, he cites scripture all over the place in his Summa Theologiae. I believe the three non-inspired writers that he cites the most are Augustine, Aristotle, and Pseudo-Dionysius. Now, a lot of the listeners may not know who Pseudo-Dionysius was. I don't know how to even describe him briefly. He was an Eastern Orthodox thinker, Neoplatonic, that in Thomas's day, people thought he was, or at least the idea was that he was Dionysius mentioned in the book of Acts, who was an early convert in Athens to the Apostle Paul. We know that that wasn't the case. Thomas relies, he does rely very heavily on Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophical notions. And that last is really important because when you read a lot of Roman Thomists, you get recognition of the influence of Augustine and Aristotle, but you don't always get as much recognition of the influence of pseudo-Dionysius. And Dionysius is just Greek for Dennis, by the way. I sometimes refer to him as fake Dennis. (laughs) Fake Dennis, yeah. yeah. It sounds a little less grand. (laughs) Exactly, a little demythologizing there. But it's hugely influential and really shapes a lot of what Thomas assumes and therefore the conclusions to which he arrives. Right. And I think that's the sort of thing where we just have to be aware of that and we have to be thinking critically about how he's using it. That doesn't mean that all of non-Christian philosophy gets everything wrong. Well, no, Aristotle had many insights about life and the world. And so we want to be willing to learn from him. And I don't think we just criticize Thomas for learning from Aristotle. But I think it's very important that we maintain that critical I, Thomas, was deeply influenced by a couple strains of ancient pagan philosophy, and it's something we need to be aware of. So this is really a book about how do we engage an important figure with whom we sometimes agree and with whom we sometimes disagree, but who's really influential. I think that's a good way to put it. Talk to us then in conclusion a little bit about the importance of engaging critically and charitably others with whom we may sometimes disagree. Well, I guess we can put it back on ourselves. I mean, would we want other people read us or listen to us or engage with our ideas, our writings, our lectures in the same way. I mean, that's the way I would want it. When I write something or when I give a lecture, do I want people to agree with me? Well, yeah, in a way, I want people to agree with me, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't say it if I didn't think I had a point. But at the same time, I don't want people just to say, well, Van Drunen said it, so it must be right. I'm going to agree with it. No, I want to stimulate their thinking. But I don't want them at the same time just to dismiss it. I certainly don't want them to misrepresent what I'm saying, to think, well, Van Drunen's a bad guy. And so we kind of read him with a hermeneutic of suspicion and figure that whatever he's saying must be devious in some way. Well, no, I would want people to read me in a sympathetic, critical way as a general rule. And so I think if we would want that of those who read us, certainly we can do the same favor to others. And that includes people who are dead. And, you know, I don't think we do ourselves or the church any favors when we just set up certain figures on a pedestal and consign other people to the garbage. All the Christian theologians who went before us, genuine Christian theologians, are in some way or another a mixed bag. The best of our Reformed theologians made errors, so we don't want to read any of them without any kind of a critical eye. And even those that we may have serious disagreements with, surely we can read them in a way that is appreciative of their accomplishments and thinking, well, maybe, you know, I might have something to learn from this person as well. So I think it's historically honest, and we should want to be honest. And I think it's also best for us theologically and spiritually to read people in a way that remembers that they are sinners 
and always going to make errors, and at the same time, by God's grace, may have important things to teach us. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.